Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. General Epistles, week 11. I'm going to be talking about, as you can see from your notes, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Jude. And uh, what's really interesting is there was a study done, I don't know if it was done by George Barna's research group, but I found it interesting about a year ago that uh, the least read book in the entire Bible is the book of Jude. Uh, because you're toward the end. What happens is you get to Jude. What follows Jude? Anybody know? Revelation. So why don't people read Jude? Because they want to get to the creepy stuff. They want the dragons and the wizards and everything else. And uh, so we're going to talk about some of the forgotten books, the, the writings of, of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, his circular letters to the churches, and the similar themes found in each one of those. So um, be a lot of commentary. Uh, because these are at the back of the book, don't assume that they're the last written books. Remember, the Bible is not, we talked about this in week one, the Bible is not stationed chronologically. Okay, there are, there are passages that take place that you'll find in the middle of the Old Testament that precede. The book of Job uh, probably should be dropped in the middle of the book of Genesis if you want to understand where it really took place. So don't get caught up in a Western mindset when you read a book saying, this is the first book and this was the last book. Genesis is the first. Revelation is the last. And then everything in between, uh, the reason I'm giving you the information up front is it's a little messed up. Now, the reason I tell you that is James is one of the first four New Testament books written. There is some debate, whether it's 1 Corinthians or James or Mark, which book is written first. Okay, so, so knowing that when we study James, it's going to be a little more elementary in how to live life, and then you're going to get to First and Second Peter, and Peter's writing to the church that's under persecution. James is telling them how to live, and Peter's saying how to live until you die, how to, how to focus on the kingdom. So uh, let's go ahead and begin. We're going to begin with James, which is all about faith at work, and... Uh, so, who wrote it? James. What do we know about James? Okay, James was the half-brother of Jesus. You find him in the Gospels. A few very important facts about James. James would be one who you would read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who thought Jesus had lost his mind. Remember that passage? They came to stop him from teaching. And the reason they did is they thought that he'd, he'd lost it. And they said, your mother and brother are outside waiting. Remember Jesus said, now these are my brother's and my mother, the, the family who's with me. The brothers also, James included, tried to get Jesus to go into Jerusalem and proclaim that he was the Messiah before the proper time. And there was a warning given to them, it's not my time. Jesus was funny. He said, I won't go with you and do that. And the minute they went to Jerusalem, he waited an hour or so and followed them right in. But he was not going to be forced to reveal himself until God told him to. James did not get Jesus. James was not at the cross. He was not there in the persecution. But something happened to James. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that James was one that Jesus appeared to in a resurrected body. James changed his mind about who Jesus was. So allow me to shadow or echo Easter. Even his brother didn't know who he was until he was resurrected. And then that's all the evidence he needed to change his life. 
Now, this is going to sound a little anti-Catholic, and I don't mean it to be. But in facing world religions, the Catholics will tell you the first pope was Peter. I'm here to suggest to you that's not true. James, if there was such a thing as a pope, and there's not, but if there was such a thing as a pope biblically, James would have been that. Because in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, it wasn't Peter that sat there and led the group. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I tell you all that background, and most of you are like, I don't care. But let me continue on, because this is what I get to do for a living. Tell you a bunch of stuff that matters that you don't care about, right? And so here we, here we go. James was a int- very interesting man because when we look at the book of Acts, we have to be careful when we're reading about James that we don't picture James the brother of John. You know, the kind of redneck disciple who wanted to firebomb a city because they wouldn't feed Jesus lunch. Uh, it's not that James. James dies at the very beginning of the book of Acts. James the brother of John. And then this James, the half-brother of Jesus, steps into play. So all of that background on the author of James, because he'll be little known uh, in our scriptures if we don't identify who he is. So what is this letter about? It's about faith that lives. Not a, not a belief, but actions. He wrote it in Jerusalem, and this would be a letter uh, written to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It's written about 48 A.D. All right, let's, let's see if we know our biblical math down. Uh, what year can we easily estimate that Jesus was crucified? Let me, let me back up and show you how we get fuzzy math. How old was Jesus when he was crucified? 33. So our instant conclusion would be he died in A.D. 33. But that's not correct because our calendar system was, was messed up. They calculated the lunar cycles and the sun cycles, and they got it messed up. So most scholarship believes that Jesus was born, and here's how we know it. Herod, who was trying to kill Jesus, died in 4 B.C. So if he died in 4 B.C., sometime between 5 and 6 B.C., Jesus would have been born, because Herod can't try to kill him if he's already dead. So... Pre-zero year, Jesus was born. So he was born three or four years before he was born, according to our calendars. So if you just do your math, that Jesus was crucified sometime in 28 or 29 AD. This letter was written 19 years after his death. It's one of the first letters written. 1 Corinthians, Mark, and James are all in contention for the first New Testament or the first book written post-death. And if you're looking that we have six books to cover tonight, I'm not going to do this with every intro material, <laughs> but James needs to be identified so that you understand why he's writing what he's writing. Uh, why was it written? To encourage Christians how to live out faith. <laughs> Sound like a whole coffee maker went over, didn't it? I think someone brought their Keurig in here. This is awesome. Okay, to encourage Christians how to live by faith. All right, so what's special in the book of James? There's a lot. Uh, often I get asked, and I, this isn't, I mean, this happens to me three or four times a year. Someone will grab me in the hallway and say, I've never read the Bible, you got me interested, or I want to know more, where do I start? Uh, I often start them in the Gospels, I think. Uh, reading Luke, uh, going from Luke to the book of Acts is a good way to start. But if they're just trying to figure out what life looks like as a believer, 
uh, I'll send them to the book of uh, James right away. It's just really, really simple. And what I ask people to do is read this book Monday through Friday, read one chapter a day, and read it for two weeks. So you're reading through the book twice, you're just taking notes, just plow this soil very gently and very carefully and very slowly. There's a lot. It talks about faith, it talks about money, it talks about respect, it talks about so many things. It's just a wonderful book. So to be able to boil it down to three points uh, is leaving a lot of good meat on the bones. But we don't, you've got an outline. So here's, here we go. Number one is understanding temptation. So one of James' big contributions to our theology, in my mind, is what he does with temptation. He tells us that we can't say that God tempts us. It's easy to do when you're suffering and going through a hard time. It's God's, God's tempting me, God's pressuring me. No, you, you have to understand words matter. There's a difference between being tested and being tempted. God never tempts you, but he does test you. And you might say, that's just semantics. You're splitting hairs. We have a God who puts us in rough situations. Yeah, he does. He never pretended he wouldn't. Okay? Anybody who wants to develop you will not let you live in comfort and ease. You have to be stretched. But the difference between being tested and being tempted is simple. Testing is asking you to do the right thing. Tempting is asking you to do the wrong thing. God will never put you in a situation to try to bait you to do the wrong thing. He puts you in circumstances trusting that by faith you'll choose the right way. That's why knowing the word of God is important. Walking and being led by the spirit is important. That if you simply go on intuition, how many times has your intuition been sinful? Okay? You battle your weight. You say, I'm going to eat healthy. And it's easy to eat healthy after a big meal, isn't it? I say to myself, after every huge meal, I diet tomorrow. I may never eat again. And then four hours later, I open the refrigerator and there's a piece of pie. And I think, well, if I eat it now, I'll get it out of the way so it won't tempt me later. I can talk myself into obesity, all based on an intuition that says I need this. So you have to be really, really careful. Temptation. James talks about the fact you cannot blame God for temptation. God delivers the power you need to overcome it. But some of us, it's ingrained in who we are. And there's so much study right now that's so effective, it's beautiful. There are people, and probably, maybe I'll just guess, I'll make up a stat. 50% of us struggle with some form of addiction in this room. Some of it is like big-time addiction. Drugs, alcohol, so forth. And others of us just fall into, it's not an addiction, it's a pattern. It's a habit. It's a bad thing. But the reason we do this is because our behavior rewires our minds. Like they know right now, pornography in a man rewires his brain and it's, it's a greater addiction than heroin. And that there's a craving for that. He didn't choose it. He never thought when he opened himself up to that magazine or that website that he could do that to himself. But he rewires his brain just like cocaine does, just like meth does, just like alcohol does. All these stimulants cause our brains to desire these things. So when someone comes to us, we have to be, we have to be very careful as Christians how we deal with someone who's in an addiction. Judge them all you want. That's not helpful. To look at a person and go, we did this to yourself. Well, thank you, Dr. Science. We all knew that. It was a choice. But how do you help someone who has, by pattern, driven their life in a direction that they can't stop the flow of it? Well, I believe in the power of God to overcome that. I don't think the healing God promises is just physical. In fact, I think we need to look beyond that. I think the healing is that God can rewire the brain that we rewired. 
But we have to be patient with that. And in all of it, we need to remind people, God is not punishing a person with addiction. They did that to themselves. But we have a God who can overcome that, don't we? So if you believe in a God who hurts you, you have to listen to James. No, God is there to test you, to hold on. And every time we say yes to God and no to sin, we become stronger by faith to overcome. But until we do that, uh, we're gonna live within the addictions and habits that we've chosen for ourselves. So he talks to us a lot about temptation. He talks about faith that counts. Faith that counts. He's not talking about salvation here. Whenever you wanna say, well, I thought Paul said we're saved by faith. You are, but faith works. Faith responds. You can tell someone you love them if you never show them a loving act, if you're not respectful, encouraging, affectionate, then your love is token. It it, it doesn't matter. But when you love God, you worship him. Not because it's Sunday. You worship him because you're grateful. You're blessed. And, And he talks a lot about Abraham's faith was not thought. Abraham lifted the blade over Isaac's chest. His faith went to work. If God said, give me your son, Abraham was willing to give his son because the book of Hebrews says Abraham was confident that God would deliver him back. That's a lot of confidence. If I kill him, God's going to bring him back to life. Jesus had that same confidence when he went, when he left the tomb, or when he left the garden, rather, and he went with the soldiers. He knew what was awaiting him, but he also knew that God would bring him back because that's what God told him he would do. Third thing, there are two problems with prayer. I track a lot of blogs on the internet. I don't know if you do, but um, I like certain authors and I like the way they think, but I am becoming just absolutely, it's tedious to me that every blog has nine things you need to do to have a growing, nine, nine things or five things you need to do to be a great husband or three things you never need to do if you want to go to heaven and it just drives me crazy, these numbers. So tonight, two things that are a problem with prayers. Number one is, James says we don't ask. Uh, Am I the only parent who gets irritated when kids whine for something that if, if they would have asked, we would have given it to them? Uh, I remember I was with a buddy at his house and his kids pretty much can do what they want. And we were sitting there and his wife gave me a, a big grapefruit. I love grapefruit. And she knows I love grapefruit. She gave me a grapefruit and I started peeling it. And the little boy walked in the kitchen and he goes, I would have liked a grapefruit. Now, if he were my son... It'd be a long time until he had a grapefruit. If he was my son, I would have said, hey, Braden, if you'd like a grapefruit, just ask because we have a bunch of them and be happy to give you one. But that doesn't get you a grapefruit. Which I had a grapefruit. And the mom said, oh, honey, you can always have a grapefruit. And he goes, I want that one. And pointed at the one I had. Now you guys can finish the story. (laughs) The problem's not his asking. The problem was the way in which he asked. Because I know what Dale Christian would have (laughs) done. Yeah, I would have had all that grapefruit in my mouth at one time. (laughs) I just wanted a bite, Dad. Uh, Anyway, so you understand my psychosis. He says, number one, you don't ask. And number two, when you ask, you don't believe he'll deliver. Prayer is a presupposition on who God is. It is a presupposition on who God is. Is he a good father, a giving father, a kind father, or is he a, a vindictive judge? who loves to say no. And when you pray, can you take no for an answer? 
A lot of times I don't pray because I think I know what God's going to do. James says that's a mistake. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you doubt. So he's not ridiculing us. He's saying there is an available God who gave his son to die for us. Why would we think all of a sudden now he's going to get stingy? He's not going to do that to us. So we jump to 1 Peter. Obviously, it's the disciple Peter. And he wrote the letter challenging people to see how Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? What choices did he make? Uh, The best research I can come up with is he wrote it from Rome. Around 64 AD. And he was urging Christians to see Jesus' life and choose holiness. So help me with my math here. How long, how long after Jesus left was this letter written? About 30, 35 years. Somewhere in that gap. Now, during this time in Rome, which is significant for context, Peter had been arrested, was writing this letter to the churches, and he would be killed by the Roman uh, Caesar, Nero, who would, took him captive would end his life. And, you know, most of us know that church history, and and church history is not Bible, but church history has some reliability to it. It says that Peter was crucified, punished in the same way Jesus was, which is really fascinating poetry, if true. Because when Jesus was being crucified, where was Peter? Hiding and running away. To, To have done to him what he saw done to Jesus would have been horrifying. But church history records, and maybe it's myth, maybe it's not, it's beautiful if it is, that he asked to be crucified upside down because he just refused to be crucified the way Jesus was. Now, I don't know how they would have crucified someone upside down. It would have expedited the process, absolutely. Uh, would have, you know, the, what I've read is he would have suffocated in his own bodily fluids being hung upside down with trauma to his body and beaten like he would have been. So anyway, he's, he's killed there. And Nero was blaming the Christians for the fact that he lost control of the ship. And so the Christians became party favors and everything else to his uh, creepiness. And in the midst of that, Peter would write two letters that we have available to us encouraging Christians how to live. Number one, what's special about it is that he told us about the joy in the midst of trials. Which really seems like an odd thing, but we talk about this often. It's just, it's a reoccurring teaching point. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is when I have everything externally I need. Joy is when I have everything internally I need. And Peter's ability to realize... Now, he's not saying that during suffering or during trials, you should be happy. He's saying during trials, understand that if God allowed Jesus to go through it, God can work through it. It is so counterintuitive, isn't it? To simply say, your life is upside down, All the foundations of your life have just been torn out from under you. Smile. No, no. Cry. Weep. But we don't weep as the world weeps. We don't mourn as the world mourns. Because we understand that God can redeem even this. It's what we tried to say Sunday in the message. 
was that, uh, you know, it's scary. But if you think you only have one life, you only get one run at this thing, then yeah, suffering will crush you. But when you realize God is going to redeem everything you've lost in this world, you can live with hope. This is what Peter's challenging us to do. And he even uses that term, the smelting term, where you take a piece of of, uh, iron and you melt it down and you burn out all the impurities because they can't stand the heat and what's left is the pure product. And if you don't see the imagery there, we're missing one of the most beautiful metaphors in all of Scripture. Sometimes God will put us in the toughest positions because he's getting stuff out of us that we, uh, we don't need. It's, you know, it's my grandma used to throw a big piece of meat. I had no idea what it was. And I'd always say to her, what kind of meat is that? And she'd say, we'll find out in about 20 minutes. And she just fried the fat out of it. And all of a sudden, there was a nice chunk of meat in that skillet. And she knew how to doctor it up. It was always good. But, she, you know, but she'd laugh. She knew exactly what cut of meat it was. But you wouldn't know it. It wasn't anything I'd seen at Kroger's. And all of a sudden, she'd put that in the, and fry the, She always said, just fry the fat out of it. And what you have left is the main thing. And God's doing that with each one of us. He's, he's not making it easy on us. Now, remember, God is not the one putting us in that. The world and sin and corruption puts us in it. Jesus didn't suffer because God created the moments. Jesus suffered because evil came after light. It always does. Darkness tries to, dis- to get rid of the light, exhaust it. So, n- number two. Here we go again. Three characteristics of the Christian experience. There's a little outline there, the three attractive characteristics. Christians are to be hope-filled and holy. How we react in suffering is a testimony to whether or not we believe God's still in charge. So how we respond when things get tough matter. Second thing, Christians have a deep respect for God. And Christians lead lives of love for one another. Now, I want to go back to deep respect for God to talk about that a moment. There is a biblical term for that. We don't use it very much because, you know, we live in grace. But there is a part of being fearful of God, having the fear of the Lord. That's not something in American culture we talk about. We don't, we don't admit to fear of anything. You know, Thursday night started popping outside, right? Clouds got dark, weathermen were freaking out, and, you know, we think we see, you know, I hear there's a, uh, there's a tornado possibly sighted over Webb City, you know, headed toward Carthage. And I looked at a little 10-year-old in our house, and he, his eyes were as big as his entire face. And he was shaking, came and sat next to me, and he goes, Dad, let's go, let's go, let's go. I said, hey, buddy, let's just watch, just, just calm down. And he looked at me, and he goes, but I'm scared. And he got really <laughs> indignant. And I said, that's, thank you for telling me. I think we figured that one out. And I said, if you want to go downstairs, we'll go downstairs. But I think we're okay for a little bit. Let's just watch and, and pay attention. And, and he I put him up to bed, and I was, uh, just said a prayer with him, and tucked him in that night and I said hey we're good and he just looked at me and he goes I don't like being scared and that's tough for a little 10 year old boy to admit out loud to his dad he'd tell it to his mom every hour but he wouldn't tell it to me and I said I'm glad you told me and I I said we prayed right we just said to God give us the ability to know if we need to go down to safety and uh, anyway fear fear of God is healthy I'm going to say a few things I fear my father I fear my father's opinion of me I don't fear my father that he would hurt me. But I never want to do anything in my life that would make my father disappointed in me. That's fear. It's, you might use the word respect, but it's really the biblical word fear. So are we to fear God that he's going to come down and smack us off his globe? No. He's, that's not God's nature. 
but we should fear the Lord. Our relationship to him is not equals. He's not big daddy. He's the creator God who's given us everything. I borrowed my grandfather's car, the one I talk about all the time. Borrowed his Ford Maverick. And my mom and dad were out of town and my car broke down. And so I asked grandpa, could I use his car to go to work? And my grandfather said to me, as soon as you get done from work, I need you to come back right back. And a buddy of mine needed a ride home. We worked at McDonald's. I took him home. I stopped and I got gas. I got myself something to eat. My grandfather knew I got off at 7 o'clock. He was not impressed with me when I showed up at his house at 8 o'clock. What I heard my grandfather say was, you can borrow my car. Just make sure you, you come back and give it to me. What he said to me was what? As soon as you get out of work, come right here. I didn't do that. To, for the rest of my dying days, I would never ask my grandfather to borrow his car again. I disappointed him, and I didn't want to do that again. And I didn't want to hear the lecture if I asked the second time about how badly I disappointed him. It was noted in the historical journals that I upset my grandfather. I wasn't about to review that history. That healthy respect I had for that little guy, that's fear. By biblical definitions, that's fear. So, when it says here that one of the characteristics of a Christian, characteristics rather, is that we have a deep respect for God. Don't be afraid to realize that when God says something, it's not optional. We don't get to debate with God about whether God's sexual code today still works or that God's feeling on how we use power still works. Uh, no, you, you've got to respect that he knows exactly what he's doing and he's gracious enough to allow us to be a part of it. So... That's a characteristic of a Christian, which even means when your life is upside down and you're suffering and struggling and you can't get yourself out of it, do we still have the same level of respect that God is in control when I'm not? I think that's one of the things that tests whether or not we really fear the Lord is when God doesn't meet our agenda, is he still our God? All right, number three. The significance of Jesus' example. I don't know. Sometimes when I read First Peter, I like to go back and read Peter's failures in the Gospels and remind myself who's writing this. Because it's, it's credentialing. It's not saying he shouldn't write this. It's saying this guy knew Jesus. He didn't get Jesus. And then when he got Jesus, he was all in. And I think that's a pattern of my life. I think I get Jesus, but I don't really get Jesus. But when I see insight and he's gracious to me, a friend of mine wrote me, I'm in this little, uh, anyway, this little group and we, we're reading a book together and then we get online and we, we post questions or quotes from the book that mean something to us and we all respond to one another. That's the, that's the gist of this thing. And he wrote today, and he, just being facetious, he said to me, he said, I just wish that other people were as merciful to one another as God is merciful to us. And, I, and he just, it just triggered something in my head. This isn't profound, it's me, it's what I came up with. But I wrote back and I said, isn't that funny? It's people who have experienced mercy give mercy and people who have never experienced mercy don't. That's, that's what I've witnessed. It's like with grace. You don't understand grace until you've needed it. it. Jesus told a story about a man who was forgiven $10 million worth of debt, went outside and saw a guy who owed him $2,000 and strangled him. And the guy he owed the $10 million called him back in and said, you did what? You couldn't forgive him that little bit when I forgave you all of that? Your debt's back on. Jesus told that powerful story. And I think what it teaches us is, Peter could talk about the, Jesus' example because he missed it the first time and yet we talked Sunday, again I'm rehearsing the message, not on purpose but it fits. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me. 
tell Peter he can't, he can't out-sin my extension of grace. So Peter, talking about Jesus' example in verses 8 through 18 of chapter 3, if you should choose to read that, after reading this little block quote, uh, it just has, it has new flavor. It's just fresh. And then fourth, suffering as a Christian. We should not be surprised that Christians are being singled out right now across the world and executed. We should not be surprised that businesses that promote themselves as Christians are going to be tested by the world looking for that exclusion that they make. We should not be surprised that there are Christians who own businesses today who will not own businesses in two or three years because our government is going to become anti-faith-based anything. Now, please don't get me wrong. I love America. And when I talk this way, every now and then I get an email from someone saying, well, you know, if you don't like our country, I love our country. I just don't like the power base that it's built on. Because as soon as you can get a crowd to go, yeah, hang that person. What have we done historically? Hung that person. And for the longest time, Christians have walked through through the world with a hall pass. And because we're Christians and this country was supposedly built on Christian principles... But look today, no, this country's been built on power. Now, it's been good, and we've used it for good historically, but it's also been used horribly. Just look at the civil rights issues in our nation, even going today. Power is what leads every nation. Read Revelation and tell me that the issue is not a battle against Babylon. And the church has to stand in opposition to Babylon. And Babylon doesn't mean 2,000 years ago, Babylon means whatever is in power at the time. And so I pray, I hope you do too, I pray every morning that God would bring a spirit of repentance on our judges and our our leading officials. He can do that. I just pray that he will break through and cause one person on our Supreme Court to have a a moment of faith and belief and explode and speak that out loud. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take all of us doing the same thing. But we're not on the Supreme Court. I'm not in Congress. You're not in Senate. So we can't just sit back and go, woe is us. We need to pray. Remember, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you don't believe. I think this all ties really well to what James was trying to teach us. Suffering is Christian. I don't want it to happen. But I'm not going to be surprised when I read my Bible that it does. I'm just not. You know, and if you look, well, that would be too politicized. Anyway, I'll move on. Second Peter. Dangers from false teachers. Peter would write about three or four years later, so we'll walk through it. Peter wrote it. It was a warning and an encouragement to Christians. Persecution was intensifying. He wrote it again while in Rome. He wrote it about 67 or 68 BC. Why is that date significant? World history, what do you know about 70 AD? The destruction of Jerusalem. Who destroyed it? Rome. And so what happened here was this is written two, two and a half years before Rome would come in and absolutely destroy the temple worship, destroy the temple, and it would send Christians, which was amazing. It was like a dandelion. They picked the dandelion, they blew it, and the church went all over the globe. 
So he's writing this letter saying, don't be surprised when persecution comes and be careful about false teachers. Remember, Satan does not oppose us. He counterfeits us. It's significant for us to to remember this. The work of evil does not go in opposition of Christianity. It goes right alongside of it and acts like it is Christianity and it veers just enough away that as a counterfeit, it has no substance. And so Peter encourages them. He's writing them. So why did he write it? There was emerging danger. Peter was concerned as his life was ending, which is really fascinating. If you want to parallel Peter, and I don't know that I've ever done this in a teaching, but I think I want to. Parallel what Peter went through in his last years of his life with what Jesus went through in the last year of his. Wasn't it Jesus who cried over Jerusalem and said, if I could gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks? Peter's writing the same letter here. If I could just get you to understand what's coming your way. If I could keep you from having to go through it, but I can't. So I'm going to warn you, be careful. Same thing Jesus did with his disciples in that last six months. So, uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through nine, God's part and our part. Peter really does an amazing thing here by talking about the fact that God is equipping us and we have to trust it. That's why knowing the promises of Scripture are important. I was talking to a friend, uh, well, it was last summer actually, at a CIY event. I hadn't seen him in a couple years and he came into Michigan and we just, I didn't know he was going to be on campus and he saw me and we sat and spent an afternoon sitting on a stoop outside of where we were staying and he and I were just visiting and, and uh, he said something to me and I just, I'm indebted to him for it. It was so simple, but it just kind of realigned some things for me. He said, he used to, struggling with, he was, uh, he's a recovering alcoholic. He said, he used to read all the time about what the Bible said about drunkenness. So what he did was he focused on the, the statements of scripture that were more, don't do this. And he said that one day he went to his AA group and uh, a pastor was in there with one of his parishioners, if you will, just sitting in that first meeting, helping him show up. And the pastor just said to him, you can't focus on the do nots of scripture. You really need to focus on the promises of what happens when you do. And this guy told me, he said, it changed everything about the way I read the Bible. Because he said every time he read that drunkenness is a sin, he felt guilty and shamed. But when he read about the promises of God being his fresh water, God being the living stream, God being the one to quench his thirst, he said that was something to live for. This took him to his past. This brought him into his future. So, what's God's part? The promises of Scripture is God's part. Our part is to trust them. And there's some charts down here. Once again, I hope you remember the notes that I've given you are hopefully useful to you in the future. When you open First Peter, you can read through the notes you've taken, see the context of it, and off you, off you go. Just start plowing it and seeing what's in there for you. Second thing that's good about Second Peter is a description of false teachers and false teachings. I really want to show you this chart excited about this chart. Larry Richards put this chart together and he writes a commentary for Bible teachers. And when I was first doing youth ministry, I got my hands on this book and it wrote a lot of lessons for me, I'm not going to lie. It gave me a lot of background. 
he talks about signs of a false teacher and he uses the books of Jeremiah, 2 Peter, and Jude, which we'll get to Jude in a little bit. But I want you to notice what it says about teachers that are false teachers. Remember, Satan does not go in opposition. He goes in counterfeit. He takes everything from the Garden of Eden on. Did God really say this? Because God doesn't want you to become like him. It's a counterfeit. So, signs of a false teacher. That they introduce heresies. They deny the Lord. They deny Jesus. Okay? There's been a real topical heresy going on right... Well, right now. It's been going on the last year, year and a half. There was a prominent evangelical preacher. Uh, happened to be from the state of Michigan who basically stood up and said that he's smarter than everybody else who's ever lived, including Jesus, and there is no hell. Just announced it. Dismissed Jesus' teachings, that Jesus used terminology that we don't understand today, and everything else. Now, I call that a heresy. Why? Because when you question the lordship of Jesus' direct teachings, you're questioning his lordship. You can say heaven and hell are opinions, and I'd agree with you, there's not enough There's not enough verses in all the Bible about heaven to actually put together a whole paragraph. So we don't know a whole lot about heaven. When I hear about, you know, dogs and cats are going to be in heaven and we're going to do this in heaven, I'm going, that would be wonderful. You're guessing. All I know is God's going to be there, Jesus is going to be there, and praise the Lord, I'm going to be there. And you're welcome to join me. (laughs) That's all I know. And to say anything else as doctrinal is a joke. But Jesus talked more about what happens after death. I'm not excited about hell. I'm not a preacher who enjoys this discussion. But I want to be really clear. When you take the words of Jesus and you refute them and annul them, that's heresy. Now, there's a lot of things we say are heretical that aren't. The Bible says to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ is heresy. Pure and simple. Peter says, listen to how they talk about Jesus. And I'm going to caution you this way too. Because every now and then someone will grab me in the hallway and it's always good nature and they'll say, hey, this morning, I always love when they say to me, hey, this morning, did you happen to see preacher so-and-so on TV? No, I don't watch TV preachers. Not because I'm better than that. If they don't podcast, I'm gonna miss them. But people will come to me and they'll say this and I always caution them. You listen to what they say about Jesus and if you can go six or eight weeks under their teaching and they don't say anything about Jesus, abort You can't preach the Old Testament without it bringing you to Christ. And you can't preach a New Testament without it bringing you to Christ. So if the people you're listening to, the authors you're reading, are talking about how to do church and how to do this and how to do this, but they don't bring Jesus into it, I'm not saying it's heresy, I'm saying it's a waste of your time. The entirety of Scripture lands on one man. And that's why Peter was adamant about, and John will talk about it too, those that are not of Christ, you have, to, you have to abort. Don't open your mind to their teaching. Because what happens is, this is there's, if you're going to come up to me afterwards and go, so who are you talking about? I'm not answering the question. But you have to be careful. Because I don't want to talk to anybody who's not in this room. If they're not talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things, if they can give you wonderful sermons about how to be a better believer, how to have more faith, how to find joy, how to find hope, how to have a better marriage, how to raise great kids, how to love other people, they can do all of that, and if you don't mention Jesus, you have no power behind anything you're talking about. There's just none there. So it's crucial. Their personality, 
bold, arrogant, which is funny. I just went off on a bold rant. And so, you know, <laughs> they know it all and they make fun of other people. But anyway, okay, so I'm a false teacher. Um, despise authority, follow desires of sin nature, and love money. Uh, we had a good laugh. Brad's in the back recording this with us. and uh, We had someone come in here on Easter. I went to the cafe. Only words they said to one of our staff members was, this place is all about money. And then Alan said, went down and got a free cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, irony, folks, it's rich. But, you know, can't, but listen, if, if you're looking for flaws, you're going to find flaws. You can walk in here and say, well, all the money that built this place could have gone to the poor. You're absolutely right. Got to be careful, though. But if you're looking for it, you can find it. So if you measured me by this, you could probably find every one of these characteristics in me at one point in my life. But you, you need to be watching. I think I told you from the first week I ever arrived here, don't trust me. I put all the scriptures I'm going to use in the outline. You better make sure I'm not telling you. My grandpa would say, you better not be fibbing. Tell the truth. Read the scriptures. Make sure that your teacher is teaching you well. Ministry. They'll appeal to lustful desires. Now, that doesn't just mean physical lust. That doesn't mean it's sexual. Because sometimes sensual is worse than sexual. Sensual is turning everything into image. Uh, you go on Twitter after... I, I don't know why I do it to myself. We had a laugh about this today, too. We hold ourselves to a little strict standard about social media here. Uh, you're never going to see anything come out of this church. And if you do, tell me, because we'll stop it. But you're never going to see anything as uh, social media out here about how many people came here, about how big this was or how big that was. It was disgusting to me how many churches feel that they've got to proclaim how many people they had on Easter. Those same churches will not put next week's numbers out. I've already got my tweet ready. About 2,000 people didn't show up this Sunday, but Jesus was still here. <laughs> Because if you're going to brag about your big Sunday, you better cotton pick and brag about 4th of July weekend when you all leave. <laughs> or what have you made it? It's sensual. It's about image. It's about style. Uh, it, it just, it's about it, those things that don't matter. Are we preaching Jesus? Or are we getting people focused on how they appear as followers of Christ instead of just being followers of Christ? And they promise freedom to the depraved, which is really a fascinating concept where Jeremiah talks about they are willing themselves, uh, they see themselves as saved because they're better than they used to be, where they're doing all these things in the name of Christ. The only reason you and I will ever be saved is because Jesus died on the cross. It's not about our perfection afterwards or our improvement. It's about the fact that he showed compassion to a group of people that killed him. Third, the coming end of the world motivates the godly. It motivates the godly. So Braden was wired the other night. And, uh, and he had a right to be. There's a lot of frantic news going around. I'm not saying it was unreasonable. It was, things were popping. There were tornadoes north of us. I mean, it was, it was the perfect climate for all of it. And he goes, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And of course, my, I'm really sarcastic and I try to downplay most things with humor and I'm the only one who ever finds me funny, but it's an attempt. And I said to him, you know what I'm going to do? And he looked at me like, yeah. And I said, I need an ice cream sandwich. And he goes, what? And I go, I'm not going to die tonight without ice cream. 
And he kind of looked at me like, Mom? <laughs> and I was like, you're not helping. <laughs> okay, so what's your ice cream sandwich, folks? If it's going to get worse, what are the things you need to be doing before it does? Because only, only a blind person walks toward a cliff they see coming or don't see coming and continue on. If, if our government, and it, it's not going to be so out there, but if our government went anti-Christian and came in and said to me, you're going to do these things or we're going to arrest you, I have to know in my heart right now what I'm willing to die for. I have to, I have to choose. I lose my job. I hope I have more talents than this. I hope I can do something else. I can dig a ditch. I can beg Kenny Ansley for money. I got options. But if they came to me and said, you can't do what you do if you don't do it our way, am I willing to undergo that persecution? Or am I going to flout my, or say, it's my freedom, it's my freedom. No, no, no. My identity's in Christ. Your identity's in Christ. When things make a turn, are we preparing our children? Am I talking to a 10-year-old boy about the cost? I had a dad come to me in the hallway at Christmas, or Christmas Easter. He grabbed me Sunday and he said, you talked a few weeks ago. This has been resonating in him and it was a great conversation. He said, I don't know what I would do if someone put a knife to my son, uh, his son's the same age as B. He said, I don't know if someone put a knife to my kid's throat if I could confess him knowing it would cause my kid to die. That's a legitimate, legitimate thought. And if you dismiss that, saying, well, I don't want to think about that, think about it. I'm not saying that will happen to us in our lifetime, but those are the questions Peter is grounding into them. Is your loyalty to the comfort of Christianity as an American? Or is it to the cause of the kingdom of Christ, live or die? I, I hate it. I had to say to both my boys, I need you to understand if we were ever put in that circumstance, I think God would take care of both of us. But I cannot deny Jesus. I can't, you know? And they're looking at me like, you're the worst dad ever. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm not saying, what I'm saying to him is, I'm not choosing me over you. I'm choosing Jesus for both of us. I think God's got grace in that moment. I just pray for courage to do the right thing. I will be scared out of my mind. But like Stephen, I fully expect the moment. Stephen was being persecuted. He said he looked up in the heaven. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's the only time in scripture you ever see Jesus standing. There's something being said there. Jesus is testifying. You stood when you testified in court. And when Stephen was being persecuted, Jesus stood up. And he looked at God and he said, that one's mine. And I just fully expect that. Now, I pray to God none of us ever see that, but my Bible tells me someone today had, and if it's happening around the world, we can only protect our, our borders for so long. So that's a happy thought, huh? You wish it would have rained. All right. Um, first, second, third John. It's written by John. He is the brother of James, the one who died early in the book of Acts. It's not the, not the brother of the author of the book of James. He talks about, this is, uh, we're going to answer this word twice because you can't escape it, love. John writes about love. Where? He's in Ephesus. It's written somewhere between 85 and 90 AD. So I know you're all doing the quick math, right? 50... 55, 60 years after the death of Jesus. What does John write about every time? Love. 
he can't write without talking about the love of God. And that really is probably all I should say about 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, but of course I've got other comments. But if you get that, you've got the gist of the books. He talks about how love motivates us, how love forgives us, how love allows us to forgive others. He talks about love, 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 love. You'd ask John, what's John's sermon? Love. In fact, someone wrote up something that was fairly poetic about this. They said, you need to picture this old man, uh, very, very feeble, he's imprisoned, and when they say, John, do you have anything to say to the church? He says, yes, I would like to write on love. They say, John, we're going to go on a trip again and we're going to visit other churches. Can you write a, another letter for us to circulate? Yes, what do you want to write about? I'm going to write about love. John, we got one more trip. Can you give us a third letter we'd like to circulate? He goes, yeah, I've got an idea. I'm going to write on love. That's what he does, all three letters. I've had a friend of mine call me, and this is what we preachers get into. We come up with ideas without doing our research. And he goes, I'm going to preach a series. Uh, and he said, I'm going to preach this. I think it was like nine weeks. I'm going to preach to first, second, and third John. After the third week, he calls me, he goes, it's the same sermon every week, I'm dying. I said, abort the series and admit you made a mistake. He tried it for six weeks, and he's like, I can't do it. Because I'm walking every week, going, remember that thing about love? Yeah, do it again, and then send him home. Because that's his theme. Number one, walking in the light means being honest about sin. Walking in the light means that we're honest about sin. Remember, John was the one who opens his gospel with light and darkness. The world hated the light because it exposes the darkness. Light, love, John's got some metaphors he really runs with. Being in the light means we're honest about our sin. Those, he says, those who say they have not sinned lie and don't know Jesus. So what was it about Jesus that you walked in the room? It was my grandmother. This is what I think about when I think about this. My grandmother could tell when I was lying. I could fool the rest of them. I never fooled that old lady. She would look at me and she'd say, Mark, Robert. And I'd go, what? And she goes, you're telling a fib. And I'm like, yeah, I did. She's like, why do you have to lie? And then I'd walk away because I didn't want to answer that. I don't know why I had to lie. It just worked. But she'd call me on it all the time. She knew that. Now, Jesus had the ability to look at a person and they spilled their soul. So whenever I, I see moments like that in the Gospels, a woman comes in while Jesus is having dinner, she begins to wash his feet and pour perfume on him. Jesus didn't say, what'd you do? No. Peter says, oh, no one's gonna, uh, everyone else leaves you, I am stuck by you, I'm your man. Jesus goes, no, you're not. Peter argued, I am too. No, no, you're not. Three times tonight, you're gonna blow me off when I need you most. But notice when Jesus exposed darkness, he didn't do it in such a way that you felt you couldn't get out of it. He always gave hope with his love. So walking in the light means being honest about sin. Number two, the warning against loving the world. This is that passage that you might hear me, if you, if you pay any attention at all, you might hear me say this periodically. This passage, verses 15 through 17 of First John chapter 2, is all about what sin is. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There is no sin that's not encompassed by one of those three categories. And this is where John makes a bold statement. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. He leaves no room for, yeah, but I'm not. Nope. He says, when you love the things of the world, 
you cannot love the creator of the world because this world is dark. It's really a challenging proposition. Number three, the warning against antichrist. And please, when you write that word out, the antichrists, make it plural. One of the mistakes that started with Hal Lindsey sometime in the 19, early 60s was to project that there was one antichrist who would come at one moment in history. I need you to know that whenever the term antichrist is used in your New Testament, it is never the antichrist. There is an article, the, T-H-E, an article in grammar. It, there is an article, the, in Greek. It is never used with antichrist. It is always plural. Every generation has a counterfeit Jesus that offers to save your soul. So if you're looking for the one grand antichrist, it's, that's not a biblical concept. Every generation has it. Now, it may not be a person. It could be a system. It could be a government philosophy. It could be an academic philosophy. Anything in opposition to Christ. So he talks about the warning against those. Pay attention. Remember, what is the delineation between someone who is of the kingdom and someone who is not? Who do they say Jesus is? So you, that's not a judgmental statement to say, who do you believe Jesus Christ is? And so we don't do it in our brotherhood of churches. We don't do creeds. In fact, we've, we've voiced since the early 1840s that we have no creed but Christ. But the reason creeds were in place was like a he secret handshake for a club. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Most everyone in America will go, yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, sure. But do you believe he was born of a virgin, resurrected, and all of the things said about him? Then you start to find people, well, I'm not going to go that far. Because if you don't believe in the resurrected Jesus, you're not a disciple of his which is really a scary proposition because we don't talk about that, but creeds would identify. Here are the things. Here are the five, eight, twelve things that we hold to be so biblical. Paul would write to the Ephesians. He would say, one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, and one God the Father, above all, in all, and through all. That was his creed. Here's what I believe. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one God. And he just laid that out there to the people of Ephesus. And he said... Agree on those things. Be unified on those things. And let the rest of the salt and pepper opinions, let them linger. So, the warning against Antichrist, they're real. It's a philosophy that tries to diminish. And then, number four, the call to love one another. And so you can trust me, I've given you a list here of just in First John the number of expressions used by John in these letters toward these concepts. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Whatever, neither is anyone who does not love his brother. Man, would that change churches in America? Would that change preaching? To say that if you can't be brotherly and love even your enemy... Man, that would just change things like Westboro Baptist. Because it doesn't say your brother who's saved. It says, love your neighbor. It doesn't mean you accept what's wrong, but 
I don't know too many people who are wrong who are convicted by more hatred and being judged and ruined. Um, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And this is God's command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Let us love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. At the end of the day, what's John's one sermon? Love one another. Why would John make all three of his books about loving one another? Because he's the guy who, when he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, never refers to himself by name, but always refers to himself how? As the one Jesus loved. Changed by love. He understood its power. He understood the trajectory of a person's life. So that was his sermon. Jude. Jude's a really good book. It's got a passage and it's really weird. Which I'm going to leave totally alone tonight. Jude. Contending for the faith. Jude. He was a half-brother of Jesus, maybe? Some debate on that? Could very easily have been mentioned in the Gospels. What is he writing about? He's writing about false teachers. Notice we're toward the end of the first century. Christianity's been around 50 years and it's starting to be counterfeited. He's writing to Christians everywhere. It wasn't a specific location. It was a letter of encouragement sent out to the churches. Remember what I told you, I think it was last week, the prison epistles, that Paul would write a letter and it would go to Ephesus and they would copy the letter and they would send it down the road to Philippi or Corinth or wherever. And this would be that kind of letter. Jude would write it, a church would get their hands on it, they would copy it, they would send a copy down the road to the next congregation or the next group of believers to encourage them. It was written probably in early 80s A.D., another 50, 55 years, somewhere in that frame. And he's got the great line, to challenge believers to contend for the faith, to hold on to our belief in Jesus. It is not the faith if it's not on Christ. Okay, so I want you to go under the outline there there's a block paragraph that begins with like Paul. Easiest way to explain this particular letter is for me just to read this. Like Paul, John, and Peter, Jude recognized the dangerous false teachers posed to the church. Both non-Christians, Jewish, and pagan teachers were active in the first century, busy reinterpreting Christian teachings to fit their philosophical presuppositions. Jude's letter, filled with allusions to the Old Testament, seems... Uh, or seemingly addressed primarily to Jewish Christians. He sums up the danger from false teachers by saying that they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ from our sovereign Lord. Uh, I was teaching uh, at a Bible college, and I started in 2000, and in the early few years, I was absolutely stunned. From about 2002 to about 2004, we had a group of students who came in, and their, their concept of grace was abhorrent. Now, they were young, they were energetic, they loved Jesus, but they were doing some pretty strange, sinful things. And their response to being corrected, rebuked, or even disciplined by the college was, I'm free in Jesus. 
It was just, it was ridiculous. I mean, they were fornicating. They were drinking before the age of 21. They were violating rules of the community called the college. We had all the students come in and they signed a covenant. They understood before they were admitted into school the agreements we had in community that we would live by. So no student came to Great Lakes unaware of what was expected of them as a student. And in that three-year period of time, I sat in more discipline meetings. I sat on more administrative councils talking with the, the administrators going, what is going on here? Because their response was, well, it's, I'm free in Christ. I'm, I'm covered by his blood. I can sin and I'm taken care of. Like, you don't respect the man who gave you the blood. Now, I remember what I was like at Great Lakes Christian College at 18 to 20. And I've always laughed. The fact that they would hire me to work there is only the grace of Jesus. Because three of the people that worked there who agreed to hire me were professors I had who had to listen to my nonsense for my first three years in school too. So understanding where they were, we gently tried to... Some of them would not accept the gentle. The beautiful part of this whole story is that two of them were asked to leave our community because the reason they were there was harmful. Both of them came back after a season of discipline. Both of them came back, graduated, and are preaching the gospel now. And both of them have conversations with me like I had with my professors. Dude, why didn't you shoot me? And I'm like, because you're worth hanging on for. You were just so stubborn. Jude's writing saying there are teachers out there who are changing the truth of Jesus to give permission for people to go deeper in sin. We have to be really careful. That, that, that makes us feel good but you remember when we talked about the letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians? He wrote that letter to a church who was not establishing holiness as a guide, as a standard. And because of that, sin was being permissive. People were living in that. And Paul wrote and said, you have got to ask them to leave the community because you cannot lower the bar to make people feel good about themselves. You raise the bar of holiness and then the grace of God reveals who they are. It's not to throw them out, but sometimes... Uh, Paul says, you've got to turn him over to Satan. So what's special in Jude? Jude's closing advice to the readers is on target for Christians today. It's on target for us today. It's fitting. Now, I think it's funny. I wrote Jude 1. There's actually only one chapter. So it's Jude verses 20 and 21. Here we go. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I just love that. I have a little sermon on that. It's one verse. It takes me about five minutes to preach. I know you don't believe I have a five-minute sermon, but I do. And I simply call it buckle up. And it's on that verse. Wait on the Lord. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord. Fear the Lord. And he will deliver. It's just the beautiful part of that book that's not spoken of very often. Next week, if Brad and I have the dates wrong and there's a bunch of kids in here, you know where to find me, right? Run away that direction. If we're in here, we'll conclude the study through what's in the Bible by looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, We'll have some fun with that. Let me have a word of prayer and then uh, we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for men and women who cared enough to record these passages and teachings for us to know years later. I don't think that's by accident. Your hand was so involved in that. To have Jude write a letter that I had 
don't know if he had any idea, would be spoken of 2,000 years later by a group of strangers, Gentiles, living across the, the globe and being able to read it on digital media or project it on a screen or read it from a physical Bible that Jude would have died to have had the scriptures in his possession. Just thank you for your word. I pray that our study is exciting us and inspiring us to study and pay attention and open your word. And I pray most of all, God, that we don't just know what it says, but that we can experience it and walk in this newness. Help us to live in the light and to honor you in the light. I thank you've kept the weather away from here. I pray for those communities right now that are getting pounded by these storms. I pray that you'll be with them and uh, as you always are, but I pray in such a way that the churches, should something happen in their communities, may the people, your people in those communities uh, come out of the woodwork loving and serving and caring for those who might be harmed or have experienced damage. May your church act like your church. And uh, I pray that tonight you'll give us rest and the ability to wake tomorrow and represent you throughout the world, in our own homes, that at work, wherever we're at, may we offer somebody a reason to have hope in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.